0: You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Hope Niagara. So good to see you and to hear you today. It's a special pleasure, isn't it, to be able to come together and worship the Lord Uh, just like we do. We don't take this for granted. Uh, We're glad to be able to do this and uh, thankful that God has given us this time, this space, this place, this day to come and to worship Him together. If you're a guest with us today, we're honored to have you here. Welcome to our family room, our worship center. We're so glad that you're here among us. And uh, if you would, Uh, Before you leave today, just do us one favor. That would be to just stop by the welcome desk, uh, just outside those doors there, and just let them know that you were here. Uh, There's some volunteers there that it would be their joy. It would make their day to be able to welcome you. And uh, we'd like to be able to connect with you personally as well uh, in the days to come, too, just to thank you for being here. So if you would, just stop by there. That would be that would be great. A reminder, church family, that uh, tonight, uh, being the last Sunday of the month tonight, 6 o'clock, right here in this room, is our monthly prayer and praise gathering. And uh, one of the pillars of our church is uh, unceasing prayer. And uh, one of the one of the expressions of that here in our church is intentionally meeting together to worship the Lord and particularly to pray together as a church on a monthly uh, basis, And uh, it's just a, it's a healthy rhythm for us to be in that we would gather for that purpose um, every month. And so we want to invite you to be here tonight. It's going to be a special time, certainly, as it always is, of worshiping the Lord. But we're going to be praying specifically. We're going to be inter- uh, doing some intercessory prayer for one of our families uh, in a, v- a very challenging situation. And uh, they need your prayers. They'll be encouraged. If you're able to be here to pray for them, we've got, uh, uh, we've got a ministry update, too, from one of our team members to just rejoice in the Lord over things he's just been doing in this church, too, and God willing, too, we'll have one of our young people uh, entering into a new chapter of uh, ministry of serving the Lord, so we want to pray for that person, and uh, so lots going on tonight. You, bottom line is, you don't want to miss it, okay? And so be here tonight, 6 o'clock, uh, and I'll look forward to seeing you here as we worship the Lord and seek him together in prayer. Well, we're in our final sermon in our series in the book of Ruth. The series has been called Experiencing God's Goodness in Life's Bitterness. And uh, we've kind of worked our way through the book of Ruth throughout the summer. And uh, today, in our final message, we're looking at some faith-building glories of God at work. Faith-building glories of God at work, you know, some of life's great, some of life's greatest discoveries are those that we would never have made on our own without somebody else showing them to us. I was thinking of this, uh, but I think about three summers ago, we were with some friends uh, visiting with them, and they took us to this particular place that it's, it's way off the beaten path, it's way back in the bush, and um, but what it is is it's a beautiful place, it's a breathtaking place with lots of. Caves and uh, uh, sort of like some deep ravines, and there's waterfalls, and there's little creeks running through. And you can climb down like way down in. It's one of those places where you go down far enough in, you can feel the temperature difference. And then you get down in there, and you find, oh look, there's an opening here, and like a cave. You can you can kind of crawl through in here, and then up this ledge, and oh look, there's a waterfall. And here, there's ferns over here. Now you know me and my aversion to adventure. So it's a bit of a bit of a stretch for me. Uh, doing this climbing and crawling and height stuff. But I have to say, pretty breathtaking. And it's, it's way out, we'd say, in the middle of nowhere. Like, even if I told you where it is, you'd never find it. You'd never find it. You, you would have to have somebody who knew where it was, who knew the way, to show you. And at a certain point, you know, we're enjoying this, exploring and marveling at what we're seeing and experiencing. At a certain point, I asked, you know, who was who it who first discovered this? Like, who first found that this was here? And and nobody really knew. But at some point, someone stumbled across this and said, hey, hey, come here, come here, check this out. And now for, for many years, people who know where it is can find their way in there and enjoy it. Some of life's great discoveries are those that we would never have made on our own without someone showing us. And in some ways, I think that kind of thing happens sometimes when it comes to God's Word, in Bible study. Like, like sometimes a small group leader would say, hey, look at this verse. And all of a sudden you, you see something that you hadn't seen before. Or someone will say, a friend will say, have you, have you read this promise? Or, or do you see what this means? And all of a sudden maybe it's something you've even seen but you haven't seen and, and, and understood the implication to but, uh, until that moment. But all of a sudden, you, you realize something, you discover a truth about God, you, you find a promise and you're impacted by something that you, you, didn't, you didn't find in your own, but somebody else showed you the way. That, that's what I'm praying and what I'm hoping will happen here this morning in our study of God's Word, that you will make discoveries about God, that you'll see some truths about Him that will thrill you, that will encourage you, that will build up your faith. Now, I'm not wanting to give you the wrong impression. I'm not trying to say that what you're going to see today, you couldn't have discovered without me. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, some of you, by the time I'm done my sermon, you'll be like, you didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. And I anticipate that that will be the case for many of you. But my, the reason I begin the sermon this way is that my message today, I want to show you four glories of God at work, four faith-building glories of God at work, to to see some things about him, four things about him in particular. But none of these things are identified explicitly in the text. Like, they're there. In fact, I would say they're they're actually quite apparently there. But it's not explicitly there. So it's, they may be things that you might not have seen, you might not have noticed if it wasn't for the fact that somebody's saying, hey, do you see that? Did you notice this? And my heart today is that your faith would be built, built up in this great, glorious God who does great, glorious things. Even in the lives of people like, well, like this woman named Ruth, this man named Boaz, this elderly widow named Naomi, and even in people's lives like yours. That's where I want to go. Our text is in Ruth chapter 4, and it's the last part of the book, Ruth 4, beginning at verse 13. And if you don't have your own Bible with you, no problem. we got you covered. Just reach out and grab just underneath the seat in front of you. You should see one nearby. Page 210, just to save you some time finding it, the book of Ruth. And uh, as we we read the final portion of uh, this book in our series, our final sermon in our series, Experiencing God's Goodness... In life's bitterness. Now, we left off a week ago with uh, uh, Boaz and Ruth about to get married. In fact, if you were here last week, remember I told you we're going to a wedding next week. Now, I'm looking across the room and I'm not seeing any suits and ties. No tuxedos. I guess I'm a little underdressed, too, but uh, it's okay. The bride and groom, I think, are pretty gracious people, so they won't mind us showing up at their wedding like this. But we're going to a wedding today, and uh, here it is. It's Ruth and Boaz's wedding. If you've been tracking with us, you've been waiting for this for a long time. It's been a long, winding road. We've been cheering this couple on, and for a moment, it looked like it wasn't going to happen, but then all of a sudden, yes, it is, and now... See, even the lights are going off. It's exciting, right? The pyrotechnics are next. Here we go. you ready for the wedding? Verse 13, Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Now, men, don't you wish... (laughs) Sorry. Now, men, don't you wish that every... (laughs) Sorry. Don't you wish that every wedding you went to was that short? Don't you wish? Just like that. Boaz took Ruth... And she became his wife. That was great. Supper time. All right. Well, there it is. I'm sure there is more festivities and and excitement and whatnot, but there is the wedding, there it happened, and it's an amazing thing. There's a God thing that this came together. And then after the wedding, they have a child. We read on verse thirteen, the middle of verse thirteen, and he, Boaz, went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashlon, Nashlon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. We've been to the wedding. It's an exciting, exciting moment. Weddings are exciting. I get to officiate a wedding this afternoon. I'm excited about it, excited for this couple. It's an exciting moment. And then after the wedding, they have a child. And then the people come together, the women come together and praise God for his kindness to Naomi, to Grandma, what he's done for her. Now in this story, in this section, I want to say to you that there's at least four glories, faith-building glories of God that we see through what he's doing. And I want you to, to, to see these to build up your faith and to encourage you. So the first one is this. Number one, God works in this world constantly. God works in this world constantly. He's always working. Verse 13, we're told that the Lord gave Ruth conception. You see that? The Lord gave her conception. She conceived a child in her womb. Now the reason I'm highlighting this is because this is the second time in the book of Ruth where God is said to have directly intervened. The first time we're told about God directly intervening, directly acting in the course of events was back in chapter 1, verse 6. So at the very beginning of the book, when it said there that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You recall, the whole story began with a famine. That's why Elimelech and Naomi and her two sons had to they decided to leave Bethlehem and head to Moab because there was a famine in the land. And then a decade later, after losing her husband and her two sons, she returned with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, She returned to Bethlehem because she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So that's at the beginning of the book. God works and he said to have done something directly, directly acted. Now at the end of the book, he directly acts again in giving her conception. Now what do we to make of this? Well, uh, I would say to you that what we have here are bookends at the beginning and at the end, explicitly telling us that God did something, God, was, God performed something. But that's not to say that he wasn't doing things all the way along. In fact, when you stand back and look at this whole story, you see the whole story is a God story. It's him working. He made the way for them to return to Bethlehem. He's the one that gave Ruth to Naomi. He's the one that led Ruth to Boaz's field and inclined Boaz's heart toward Ruth and Ruth's heart toward him. He's the one who, God is the one who worked through the strategy that Naomi had. Naomi's strategy, Boaz's integrity, Ruth's loyalty. All these human actors working and doing but we see here, looking at the beginning and the end of the book, it's actually, it's all God working over and working into these things and through these things. He's been working all the way through. It's just just too wooden and too tedious to say every sentence throughout the book, God did this, and God worked in this way, and God worked that way. You see, when we stand back and we see the bookends, we realize this is a story all about God. And Him working constantly. God is working constantly. He's working today. You say, I don't see it. You may need to look harder. Because he's working all the time. He never takes days off. Like we take days off. We, we need to take days off. We need to rest. We need to relax. We need to recover at times. But God never does. He's, he's always on. He's always working. And that is an important theme to see in Ruth. Nay, it's an important theme to see in the Bible. It's an important theme to see in your life. He's always doing something. And he's doing things in all kinds of different levels and ways that we often don't even see until after the fact. I bring this out because, well, in part, my wife's right over here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out to you something that she reminds me of whenever we're talking about the book of Ruth or studying this book. And she reminds me about how God was working in Boaz's life before he ever even met Ruth. Look at, the, um, look at the genealogy there. Down in verse 21, it's, it's taking us from Perez, who is like the sort of the father of this clan, this part of the nation of Israel, all the way down to David. So showing a connection, the, the family line from, from, this, uh, from, from Perez all the way down to David, who many, many years after the book of Ruth, these events happened, would become king. Now, notice it says, verse 21, Salmon... I have a hard time saying this. Salmon, Salmon, Salmon. It's, I, it's my Peterborough accent. It just gets in the way all the time. Salmon fathered Boaz. Now that, that's there, and so there's a connection between Salmon and Boaz. He fathered him. In the ancient and biblical genealogies, sometimes it goes from one generation immediately to the next, but know this, sometimes the biblical genealogies skip generations, because their purpose isn't to give you the whole family tree. Their purpose is usually to show you a connection between this generation, this ancestor, and this descendant. That's often why, so you'll have skipped generations where one fathered another, but there's a few generations in between. Is that the case here? We actually don't know 100% for sure. I would say there's probably a gap, but here's what I do know. When you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. In which he traces through Israel's history all the way down to Jesus. And in that genealogy, in that family tree, he mentions that Salmon fathered Boaz, but then he adds this, by Rahab the prostitute. Now, if you don't go to church much, you don't know the Bible, you just heard me talk about Rahab the prostitute, and you're like, well, this sounds interesting. It is interesting. She's a very interesting woman. She's one of those complicated people you might encounter in your life. She was a prostitute in Canaan. But in the history of Israel, as, as God's people were moving into the land of Canaan, she helped out some Israelite spies and helped uh, help the Lord's people. And on the other side of all that, she was really grafted into the people of God. And many, 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 many generations later, when Matthew writes his gospel, we discover that she is in Jesus' family tree. Now, the relevance to Ruth, and I know why Leanne will want me to tell you this, is because, remember I said that God is working constantly, and he works in ways and on levels we don't always perceive in the moment. You have Boaz, who's tender-hearted and madly in love with this woman, Ruth, who is from a foreign country, from Moab. And yet, she is now grafted into the Lord's people. Do you see the connection? Rahab was either his mother, his grandmother, or his great grandmother. This woman from another nation, another people, who joined herself by faith to God and to his people. That had to have some kind of impact, certainly on Boaz's heart and certainly his outlook when he saw this woman, Ruth. Don't you see the hand of God at work in his life long before he was ever even came along preparing his heart that when he would see this woman, Ruth, and then she was amazing, but he also had a special place in his heart, surely for her, because his own mother or grandmother or great-grandmother had a similar story to hers from another people, now grafted into God's people. God works constantly working in ways that we can barely fathom at multiple levels, all to bring his purposes together for our good and his glory. Nobody in this narrative, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, nobody had the big picture yet. They didn't see, they didn't know about David, the king to come. They didn't understand about Jesus and how this was all led to him. They were just trusting God and living for God in their context. But we get to stand back and look and see, look how God is working constantly. And that's got to build your faith, loved one. When you look at a God who's always working, you can know that even when you don't feel it, even when you maybe doubt it, even when you struggle to see it at all, you can have the confidence that God is always working. He's working around you. He's working in you. And you know what? You trust him and follow him. He'll work through you in ways that, on the other side, will shock you. Like, imagine imagine if we got to be the ones to bring Boaz and Ruth and Naomi in to find out the rest of the story. How exciting would it be to see? How blown away would they be to see? Now, you were doing this. You were doing this back here, and you got married and had that baby, and it was so cute and special, and you praised God for his kindness to you. It was amazing, wasn't it? But stand back and look what God was doing. Boys, look how God was preparing your heart. All three of you, look what God was doing in Israel, preparing the way for a king. Look what God was doing for humanity, preparing the way for a savior. You got to be part of that. Do you think they'd probably just sort of sit down and take a deep breath? Listen, this is your story, too. You're part of this story. As the Lord builds his kingdom, you're part of this story. He's working in you and around you and through you for his glory. So don't just look at the Bible people and say, aren't they lucky? No, you and I, we are blessed. This part of our story, we have this God who is working constantly. The key is to trust him. The key is to, is to lean into him with faith. Because it's through the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz That God brought to pass an outcome that was better than they could have ever realized or imagined. He honored their integrity, their loyalty, their sacrificial love, their faith, and he'll do the same for you. God is at work in this world constantly. Don't lose sight of that. Remind yourself of that. Make a note to yourself. God is working right now. he's, He's working. That's not all. Second glory that I want you to see is that God cares for his people relentlessly. He's working in this world constantly, and part of what he's doing constantly is he's caring for you relentlessly. Relentlessly. Verse 13 tells us that Ruth and Boaz have a son, and then you would anticipate, if you haven't read this story already, you would anticipate that at this point, we got the new bride and groom, They have a baby. We would anticipate that the narrative would take us into their new family home and tell us what happened there and tell us how they were rejoicing in God. But the narrator doesn't take us into their home. The narrator takes us to Grandma's house. Isn't it interesting? It says at the end of verse 13 about they had a son. Now verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Grandma, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Remember? So this, this whole idea of redeemer. Now, Boaz's role in her life and Ruth's, it provides security and provision in that ancient context. And they're praising God for God's provision, not just for Ruth, but now especially for Naomi. Now, why Naomi? Why, why grandma? Well, there's a kind of care here that God is showing us that's important for you and I to see. Have you noticed... Every chapter in the book of Ruth comes back to Naomi. Every chapter. Chapter 1, we hear Naomi complaining or lamenting about how God has dealt with her. It comes back to her. And in chapter 2, Naomi, she's wondering at the huge haul of food that Ruth has brought home out of Boaz's field. And in chapter 3, Naomi again telling Ruth, just wait, Boaz is going to sort out this whole marriage thing. And now at the end of chapter 4, we have Naomi holding this child, this grandson that she never dreamed she would have. What's the point? The point is, is that in spite of all the things that were going on, Ruth, Boaz, preparing the way for a king, preparing the way for a savior, all these things that God is doing and more, He was relentlessly caring for Naomi. He's caring for her. God cares for her relentlessly. He's never forgotten about her. He's never overlooked her. She's always on his mind. And the narrator goes out of his way to show us that. Every chapter brings us back to this old widow, Naomi. One commentator put it this way. God is preoccupied with Naomi's welfare. And I would say that he's preoccupied with yours too. When you're preoccupied, you know what we mean by that, right? Like your, your attention is over here. Your attention is on something. Maybe there's other things going on that you're also attending to or trying to attend to. But when you're preoccupied, there's always something on your mind. I was uh, thinking about this in my, uh, my first pastorate. There was, uh, there was a dear lady and uh, she had some special needs and uh, uh, she was advanced in years but she was there at church every single Sunday but one of the things that she did just about every Sunday is about 15-20 minutes into my sermon she would fall asleep and I mean sound asleep and uh, uh, some, some weeks some weeks she would snore and on a handful of weeks her snoring would be very loud so everybody Can hear it. And this one particular Sunday, her snoring was so loud that me being miked, we were just sort of like the same decibel level, the two of us going on. So you can imagine, you know, somebody's just sitting there and she sat right near the front and uh, at the front there, you know, head back and. What you can imagine, right, as I'm trying to preach and people are trying to listen. But at a certain point, we're just like, okay, okay, we're, we're all here. We're all here. And then you think, you know, and the, and the other thing, too, is she had a, her brother would sit with her every Sunday, but he was hard of hearing and he couldn't hear her at all. So he so just sit there, just oblivious, but everybody else in the room, were all right over here. My strategy some weeks was if she was snoring, is i try to walk over close to where she was and talk loud, maybe hopefully just to kind of stir her from her sleep. If she wasn't snoring, i just let her be. But um, the reality is in those Sundays when she was sleeping and sleeping and snoring loudly, all of her attention is here. Now, you and I, when we get preoccupied, it's often distracted, right? Like, we just, I'm trying to listen, but all I can hear is snoring, right? But God's not like that. He can have his attention fully fixed in multiple different places, limitless number of places at the same time. And that's the point that I'm trying to make, is that God is preoccupied, in a sense, with you. His first passion is for his glory, and that is for our good. But that doesn't undermine the reality that he knows all about you and he sees you and he hears you he knows the tears you cried yesterday he's heard the frustration that's boiled over from your heart this morning he knows the situation in the bank account he's read the report from the doctor he sees he knows he hears He cares about you. You say, well, that sounds nice, Ross, but are you sure? Yeah, really sure. Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 6, talking about God's care for us. He pointed out the grass and the flowers around and noted their beauty and how they're arrayed. And then he said, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's Jesus saying there? He's saying God cares for you. And he assures us that God will give us whatever we need in order to do what he wants us to do. He assures us that. He cares for us. Peter says something similar. He calls on us to humble ourselves before the Lord by casting all our anxieties Upon him Well, why should I do that, Peter? Because he cares for you. That's what he says, because he cares for you. Now that's Naomi's testimony. By the time we get to the end of the book, her friends and neighbors are saying, "Your God has been so good to you. Blessed be God." She experienced his care. She faced grief, poverty, an uncertain future, but she found from God relentless care. He kept coming back to her. And never lost sight of her. And we see that reflected in the text. So what's what's befallen you lately? Perhaps like Naomi, it's grief. Financial problems. Where do you go with that? Well, I would say you need to go to the God who cares for you. And to lay it before him. To cry out to him. Lay it on the line just like Naomi. She struggled. She said some things that for us, we read it and we're like, oh, it feels a little cringy. But she, she never lost sight of the fact that God is God. And by the end of Ruth 4, she couldn't deny. He cares. And I think that if you trust him, you'll find the same thing too. Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. Just ask Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. You'd never read this story and write easy over top of their lives. But you would write good. Because there's God who cares relentlessly. He works in the world constantly. He cares for his people, even me, even you, relentlessly. Third, God rules over everything sovereignly. He rules over everything sovereignly. Verses 18 to 22, as we've mentioned already, is a lineage tracing back through some of Israel's history from this ancient ancestor Perez all the way down to David. Now note this that the events of the book of Ruth are long before David. So we can conclude that the book of Ruth was written many, many years after Naomi and Boaz and Ruth lived on this earth, probably in, during the reign of David, probably uh, showing how God worked in history to provide Israel with this king, which is fascinating because in all the complexities of the Bible, here's another one, and it's this. It was sinful for the people to ask for a king. And yet many years after the story of Ruth took place, God provided them a king. And now we read the book of Ruth and we see that many years before, he was working to pave the way for the king. Sinful to ask for a king, but God nonetheless conceded and provided them a king and use this line to not only raise up the greatest king in Israel but also to from this king bring about a king above all kings who be the savior of the world like my my mind just starts to fizzle and snap like there's there's things going on in here as i try to compute this together because we worship a god who's sovereign over everything and even sinful choices sinful desires do not derail or thwart his good purposes 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people cry out for a king. Samuel says, God, what do I do? They won't let up. They keep asking. We want to be just like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. How come we don't have a king? We want a king. Give us a king. Finally, God says, okay, give them a king. Obey the voice, God says, 1 Samuel 8 verse 7. Obey the voice of the the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, it's sinful. And yet, this God who does not sin... This God who does not approve of sin still governs over everything including sin and brings to pass in spite of sin sometimes through sinful choices in his sovereign rule brings about glory and grace and goodness. I'll give you an an example. Think about the death of Jesus in and of itself. The betrayal of Jesus. Even the murder of Jesus. Is there any bigger sin human beings could commit than murdering the Son of God? And yet, this was part of God's great plan. A God who does not sin, does not approve of sin, yet still is able, takes this as part of his redemption plan to save you and me. It's passages like this that make me just step back, sit down, put my, put my hands in the air and say, God, you're great. Because he rules over everything. Everything. Is people sinning against you this week? Is there heartbreak, crises, injustices in the world around you that shakes you? Steady, loved one, steady. You have a God who's always working, always cares, always in control. Never says, whoops, whoops, never. Always sovereign, all the time. What's more, we see him going way out of his way to include Ruth in this family tree. Right? I mean, think about it. He goes way out of his way to bring Ruth in. Like famine and emigration and, and then death and returning. It's just, it's just a whole complicated story. And yet God has worked so that Ruth is part of the lineage of David, the lineage of Jesus. What's the point? God is building a kingdom that is, among other things, marked by ethnic diversity. It reminds me that in the end, the nations will gather and worship Jesus. And he is building a kingdom today made up of nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. God has a heart for the nations, and we see it even back here in this book of Ruth. We see it in Rahab. We see it in Ruth. And why? Why does he do this? Why would he include Ruth? I mean, think about it. Think about it. When Jesus was walking the earth, he had Moabite blood coursing through his veins. Why? Because it pleased God to do so. It pleased him to do so. It's because what he wanted, what he determined, what he decided, he's sovereign over everything. So the application for you and for me is to trust him and to come under him. Trust him. Come under him. Acknowledge that he reigns and he rules. And dear Christian, rejoice in that. Rejoice that he, he never loses control. It may look like things are getting out of control. Not for a second. Not for a second. He's got his hand steadily on the wheel. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He will see it through. And no sinful decision or no destructive, demonic, satanic activity will stop him. He's going to see it through. So take heart-loved ones. God rules over everything, sovereignly. He works in this world constantly, cares for his people relentlessly, rules over everything sovereignly. Fourthly, finally, God in his grace pursues us personally. He pursues us personally. Just as God went way out of his way to include Ruth in this story, so he's done the same for you, including you in Christ. Like, let's get real for a minute. There ain't any one of us here who God could look at us and our spiritual resume and say, well, she deserves to be in my kingdom. All have sinned, the scripture says, and fall short of the glory of God. Like I say many times, if you doubt your own sinfulness, ask the people closest to you. They will confirm for you, you ain't perfect. Far from it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned against this great God. We've not treated him like God. We've despised his glory. You say, well, I didn't have anything against God. You didn't worship him. You didn't love him. You haven't loved him the way you should. You haven't treated him like God. And that sin separates us from him. But God has gone way out of his way to include you in his kingdom. Gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world that first Christmas and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That's God going out of his way. And how about on a more personal level? You hearing this good news about what Jesus has done sent somebody to you, somehow, some way. Maybe it was a podcast. Maybe it was a radio. I got a friend of mine, he got saved listening to a cassette tape in his tape deck in the 80s and heard the gospel and pulled over on the side of the 401 and gave his life to Jesus. Lots of people. God has gone out of his way. Maybe he sent a person into your life, a long-suffering prayer warrior. Maybe multiple things, but he's gone way out of his way and he's hunted you down and he's found you and he's brought you to himself. He went way out of his way to include you. So when you look at Naomi... You can, or when you look at Ruth's story, you can see yourself. A God who is, as one poet said, he's the hound of heaven. Came after you and found you. And I think I've told you my story many times. It doesn't get old to me, so I hope it doesn't get old to you. God came and found me. I, I'm still blown away grateful that God, in his mercy, I knew better. I knew better. I, I, ca- I have no memory in my life of not knowing about Jesus. I grew up in church, I've known about Jesus my entire life, and yet I chose to love and pursue other things. I'm faithful to the Lord, and and a duplicitous life, going two different directions. Doing the church thing, doing the Christian thing, but then doing my own thing over here that's not Christian living. It's exhausting, and it's hellbound. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy confronted me in my sin and called me out and this is my story your story is different here's my story I'm not a charismatic person but I'm telling you this is what happened I was overcome with physical pain physical pain and I remember getting into that position that I, I, you're in when you're in your mother's womb and trying to, just trying to find some relief and some comfort I've never heard God's voice audibly never have but that night it wasn't audible but I knew he was saying are you going to follow me or not make up your mind now and cried out to God for his mercy and acknowledged I've sinned against him and, and, and desiring for his forgiveness and now this life and have another chance. And, and he gave that to me. What was happening that night? He came and found me. He went way out of his way to grab hold of my sorry soul and include me in Christ. And your story may be different than mine, but there's lots of you that say, yep, yeah, right here, me too, me too. That's why we love that that hymn, Amazing Grace. You know, it stayed this long because the truth so resonates. Newton said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Who did that? God did it in Christ. See, God works in this world constantly, cares for his people relentlessly, rules over all things sovereignly, and in his grace, pursues us personally. The purpose of this message is to build your faith in this God. And it really, it's all about trust. Will you trust him? I had the privilege of speaking at camp this week to a bunch of young teenagers who themselves are not quite old enough to drive, but they can smell it. It's coming. And um, so I use this analogy with them, they're gonna use it with you. Imagine your life as a car. You get in that car, there's only one steering wheel, there's only one set of pedals. And I know technology's coming where the computer can drive the car for you. That freaks me out actually a little bit. And uh, it's kind of disappointing because there's lots of days I like driving. I don't want the computer to drive, but anyway, that's a side point. There's one spot for a driver, one steering wheel. One person can drive that car. Who's it going to be? You know, if you're driving along in your car and somebody reaches over and starts doing stuff like grabbing the wheel and, you know, shift it, you're you're probably going to end up in a tree. Only one person can drive the car at a time. Let me ask you, who is driving the car of your life right now? And who do you think will be best to drive the car of your life right now? you? Your friends? Influences around you in social media? Who? who? What about God? I'm presenting to you a God who's worthy of your faith. Who I would say, for some of you, maybe there's a particular situation right now that you need to entrust to him. And say, God, i got to go your way in this situation. i got to trust you. Maybe it's a kind answer. Maybe it's to be patiently wait. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's to pray. But God, i got to go your way in this. I wonder if there's a situation in your life right now that you need to surrender to him, that you realize this is best put in his hands by prayer and by obedience. For some of you, maybe it's a relationship. You're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm totally a loss here to know what to do. I don't know what to do. Or it could be a, a family crisis or a health issue. Financial? What is it? Is there something in particular that you see this glorious God at work and you realize, I best trust that with him? For others of you, though, I wonder if today is the day when it's not just a situation that you'll entrust to him, but maybe for the first time, your life that you'll entrust to him. That in the car of your life, isn't it time for you to undo that belt get out of the driver's seat, get in the back, and let God drive? Who do you think will drive better? Who do you think would better navigate your life for you at the wheel of your life? You? If it's you, I'm getting out. But man, you you trust this God. He shows himself again and again and again to be the best candidate to run your life. So I would invite you to trust him and ask this Jesus to come into your life and take over. To tell him, I'm done doing my own thing. I've run, I've wrestled long enough, I've resisted you long enough, I'm not doing it anymore. I wonder if by faith today you could say, God, you win. You win. You found me. You found me. Here I am. Come and save me and make me yours.